seated uh, today and also want to dismiss our children with Mrs. Ludwig uh, as they continue their journey in the Gospel Project, learning more about the Lord Jesus and all the more treasuring uh, His salvation uh, in which we sing. Good morning again. want to welcome you all here to Renovation Church as well. Uh, it's just exciting to enter into the fall season and uh, start to see the cold weather, right? Because if you're from Syracuse, you're actually kind of excited about this, that it is no longer hot if you're a true Syracusean, right? Okay, no, I'm offending people. But nonetheless, it is the fall season. Seasons come and go here, and uh, we're excited to enter into uh, another season together, even in the church, uh, which is a unique opportunity for us to connect with people as people get back into rhythms and routines. So again, welcome this morning. Uh, I am not a photographer in any way, shape, or form. You know, we carry around these things, and we all of a sudden think every picture that we take is worthy of other people viewing and enjoying on things like Facebook and Twitter, right? Right? It's, kind of, it's nuts what we do with these things. We all think we're professional photographers, uh, that everyone should see all of our photos. Well, I, I'm not one of those, of course, uh, but uh, I do like to take pictures. And uh, I came across a technique in photography that I've yet to really understand to a level that I can actually utilize or perfect. But supposedly, if you take a picture, and in our digital world, you can mess with that image. And one thing that you can do, and some of you may know what I'm talking about, is you can use forced perspective techniques. Some of you are learning something today, right? Write it down. Forced perspective techniques, okay? It's a way that you mess with the tilt, oh yeah, the tilt of the image in such a way to blur the foreground of the image and at the very same time, blur the background of the image. And do you know what the effect of such a blurring uh, does to the image? Does anybody know? What happens to the focal point of the image when you blur the foreground and the background? Does anybody know? It distorts it for sure. What's it do? It looks tiny. Right, it takes something that is huge, Billy, huge, and makes it small just by messing with the clarity of the foreground and the background. You make Take something that is large and it makes it look small. Here's some uh, examples of that. Maybe you can take a look. Right? Forced perspective uh, technique. Something is small. What else? Another one? What do you think of that one? It's pretty cool. Anyway, this is what is done. I think this gives us insight into what we are prone to do when it comes to the nature of salvation. In the church, we talk about being saved all the time, right? Are you saved is a question that we ask. We celebrate this salvation and a Savior named Jesus. But I think that based on the foreground of our lives, maybe the 9 to 5, maybe Monday through Friday, the, the messiness of just getting done what we need to get done and putting kids to bed and taking out the trash, that, that it kind of blurs the beauty easily and the joy and, 
and the clarity, the wonder of this salvation, just the foreground of our lives. And maybe even this, that as people and Christians for years, we've lost a sense of our roots, how God, quote unquote, saved us. We've lost a sense of our uh, a previous life, that, that what life used to be, we're disconnected from that. And, and so the background and the foreground of our lives get blurry. And in doing so, whether intentionally or unintentionally, what begins to happen as the foreground and the background of our lives get blurred, confusing, distorted, is that the salvation of our God seems small. And we lose sight of its true scope, its true magnitude. And so as we enter into this series called Saved, it's our desire, and again, we're not going to look at it from a comprehensive point of view. We're not going to talk about everything there is to talk about when it comes to salvation. We're going to take a four-week look of the scope in terms of its breadth and its time. It's much bigger than you think. Maybe your perspective is needing an adjustment. Let's open up to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Some of you are just getting excited about the fact that we're only reading four verses today. <laughs> based on some of our times in Exodus, where we thought, man, will this ever end? Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through salvation, we start our series together. And I want to point out this, that I believe that there are at least three false assumptions that we make when it comes to salvation. And it's my hope that we could combat those assumptions with three corollary truths, okay, to help show us the accurate picture of salvation. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. As days in malice and envy, hated by others and Hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen. When we make false assumptions it can have deadly consequences. You probably are well aware of the situation and story, maybe even just the movie, uh, surrounding the Titanic. 
right? The, this vast ship, this monster of a machine that was taking a trip from Europe to come to New York City. There was a belief that was simple. The Titanic was unsinkable. No matter what it faced, no matter what would come in its path, no matter what speed it traveled, the Titanic is simply unsinkable. That was the assumption. Based on its size and its magnitude and its strength. And we know the rest of the story, or at least the movie, is that even though the warnings went out, ice, slow down, reroute, they did not slow down and they did not reroute. And do you know why? They made an assumption that was false. The Titanic is, sinkable, is unsinkable. We know that it was very much sinkable. And we know that tragically many people die. To maybe bring it more 2015, maybe even more close to what we might read in the newspapers today. That you will often open up the paper or watch the news, whatever channel you watch, and you'll see a sad report of a teenager that was in a fatal crash. And in this assumption that at the age of 16, 17, whatever, that we're invincible. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. And yet, some sort of awful crash occurs, and we know how the rest of the story goes, that unnecessarily, Someone's life was cut short because they made the assumption, I do not need to wear my seatbelt. The Titanic, I do not need to slow down. I do not need to wear my seatbelt in the case of the tragic death of the teenager. Often we make assumptions about what we need and what we don't need. And sadly enough, when it comes to salvation, this is our first assumption, I believe. I don't need to be saved. That may be you this morning. That you hear this language of salvation and, and, and sin and being saved and all this, and you think to yourself, well, that doesn't really apply to me. That's irrelevant. Sin is irrelevant. Salvation becomes unnecessary. You may have known the former governor, Jesse Ventura of Minnesota. Yes, I did drop Jesse Ventura in this message. Jesse, the body Ventura, the former WWF wrestler that turned governor, made this statement. He says, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. You see, it's based on this idea that any message of sin and salvation is basically religious rhetoric. That there's a group of people in the world that have been using religion, the gospel, this idea of sin, that there's something wrong with the human condition, needing a savior, is just religious rhetoric to control society and take political advantage. And that really, that this needs to be removed from our thinking, and that it's just simply there for weak-minded people who need a crutch in order to survive. 
Another Christian author by the name of Scott McKnight wrote an article about a new generation of people. He talks about a generation of people that were discipled by Big Bird, right? They grew up watching Sesame Street. And what they heard through Sesame Street was, you are valuable. You are inherently good. You are worth something inherently. The self-esteem movement, right? That, that basically, inherently, you are good, you are awesome, you are worthy, you are to be esteemed. This generation of people, when they hear the word sin, are grossed out by that idea because for years their psyche, their emotional well-being has built up a fort around themselves that defends anyone that would attack. And anyone that would say, you have an issue you have sin in your life, there's something wrong with who you are, is basically bringing a direct assault on what they are told to protect and esteem, their identity, themselves. And so we live in a world today that sees salvation as unnecessary. Because sin is an irrelevant religious rhetorical device. But that's not what the scriptures teach, is it? That salvation is necessary based on our sin and the consequences that come from sin. We see here, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Basically, your state, the human condition, is jacked up. That you're living in sin. And that you're living in the effects of sin. Ephesians chapter 2 spells it out even more intensely as it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, we're being controlled by our sin. We're being influenced by Satan and the prince and the power of this world. Among whom we all once lived. It's a universal issue that we face living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so what is reality for us from the Scripture's point of view is that sin is real, and it's ruining us in the deepest part of who we are, and it is wreaking havoc on relationships. Tell me I'm overstating it when you look at the world and also some of the struggles of your own life. Sin is real. It is not irrelevant. And the reality is this. There's nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves. And so we need a Savior. We need someone to save us. We're dead in sin, enslaved to it. And so I ask the question, is there anything more relevant in our lives today than the sin issue, given the death that it leads us in and toward? And is there any more pressing of an issue for us than salvation? 
Tell me something more that is higher on the priority scale than your eternity. Than your freedom from this sin that is ruining you. Tell me something more pressing in your life than that. Whatever the case may be, our first false assumption is that I don't need to be saved. The second false assumption that we make is this, is that God will save me, right? You recognize you need salvation from God, but listen to this, God will save me because of my good works. It's an incorrect assumption like the other that also has the same eternal consequences. I think many of us, even unknowingly, in the evangelical church, continue to live in a way that shows that we're preaching a gospel of grace, but yet living in a gospel of works. Many of us have the perspective that I call the 5149. Right? It's basically a a playing on percentages. That is, if we are good or doing good, at least 51% of the time, that the scales kind of lean in our favor. right? It's like as if the moral scale tips back and forth based on the percentages. Like, I'm good and do good at least 51% of the time. And because of me being at least 51% of the time good, that's good enough for God. He'll save me. Because I'm good 51% of the time. Almost outweighing the 49, as if that's sufficient. Another thing that I think we do, not just the 5149, is, and I've talked about this before, we live in a I'm not that guy relative righteousness. Meaning we look at other people and we see the evil and wicked things that they do, works, and we draw the conclusion, well, I didn't do that. So God is going to save me from my sin because they're not as bad as that guy. My righteousness, based on looking at his or hers, is good enough. It will suffice. I think many of us do that, especially if we watch the news. We're not as radical as that guy. That person's crazy. I wouldn't do that, right? And so we base our own sense of righteousness on not doing a certain set of activities or works or deeds that we would consider to be really bad ones. It's relative in its righteousness, and it's good enough for us, so we would assume. I think sometimes we think, We'll be fine just because we tried hard enough. Like E is for effort, right? That as long as I try, well, I failed miserably, but I gave it every ounce of effort that I could. As if that would be sufficient. I tried. I worked at it. I failed miserably, but I tried. And I think for some of us, too, we look at uh, past works or, uh, you know, connecting ourselves, associating ourselves with 
a past work, or, or maybe even associating ourselves with a family dynamic, like, well, my family's been members of this church for 30 years. And so we're innocent by association. Well, my, my wife goes to that church, and so we're righteous based on somebody else's work that we deem to be good. Do you understand? I think many of us look in the mirror and we feel good about ourselves and our standing before God based on maybe what we've done in the last couple weeks where we've given some money, we've gone to small group, we showed up at church, you know, we didn't, we didn't swear at anybody. So our standing before God, we begin to assume that God will be fine, it'll be enough as long as we have some merit, some good works of our own. But really the assumption is this, and it's also prideful, just like the first one. I'm going to save myself. Right? We will save ourselves is a tragic assumption. Because look at what it says. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's what the Scriptures teach. Our salvation is not because on the basis of our works done in righteousness. And here's one I think that we're plagued by all the time. God will not save me because of my bad works is another assumption we make, isn't it? People that feel the weight of guilt, the weight of condemnation, they feel like each day is... A, a, a carrying around of a boulder on their backs from their past, from, the, from their sin. And they've heard the gospel over and over again. They've heard of grace, but yet their, their sin still seems overwhelming and too much. And they walk around with the assumption that God would never save them because of the bad things that they have done. The guilt complex, right? Guilty complex we walk around with. That our sin is so bad, it's taking us so far away from God that He's unable in His love and in His grace and in His forgiveness to reach me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe there's some sin that you can't forget. Maybe there's some struggle that you can't defeat. And you've come to the conclusion that there's no way God could save me. There's no way that God would ever forgive me. And then we come to the shocking truth of the reality of salvation and the reason behind it. That these assumptions are clearly wrong according to the Scriptures. Look at what it says, verse 5. He saved us. Is there a better phrase in the Scriptures? He saved us. Memorize that one. You say, I don't do Scripture memory. Can we memorize three words together? He saved us. Subject of the phrase is He. That's God. Meaning this. That salvation is not our work, it is God's work. He does it. 
He's the subject of the phrase. Verb, saved, decisive, done, accomplished by the, by the subject, God. God decided and acted in a way to save. It's done. And then, of course, the object, us, the recipient, the recipient of the action, the beneficiary of the Savior is us. Simple phrase, he saved us. Assumption that we save ourselves, wrong. Assumption that we don't need to be saved, wrong. Assumption that that what? We will save ourselves. Did I already say that one? Yes. Assumption that he would never save. Wrong. Truth. He saved us. Salvation is the work of God. Period. End of story. Actually, not the end of the story, but period. And then the shocking thing that we see is why he saved. He did not save because of our deeds done in righteousness. He did not save because we're awesome. We saw that in Exodus. He did not save because we deserved it. We deserved anything but that. He saved not on the basis of our works, but what does the passage say? He saved because of what? His own mercy. And if there's anything that corrects our vision and view of God, it's that statement. That He is a merciful God. For those who feel as though they are in that condemned, unforgivable, unreachable, untouchable by salvation world. Know this, that it's not in accordance with your good deeds or your bad deeds. It has nothing to do with that, his salvation. It has everything to do with who he is and what's inherently inside him and a part of his character. He's merciful. It doesn't matter what you are. (laughs) It does, but you understand my point. It's who he is and how he postures himself towards you as the sinner deserving of judgment, mercifully graciously that God saves not on the basis of our deeds but according to his own mercy the nature of who he is as merciful I love that word his own he didn't borrow it from someone else he didn't read about it on some blog he didn't check somebody somebody else's thoughts out and go hey maybe I'll start acting like that too no it's just inherently who he is He didn't need to withdraw from any other well or source to be merciful. It's in and of himself. It's his own. So we have our own being, our own works that are ours, that are attached to ours, that separate us from God, and yet there is something inside of God that brings us back to him, and it's just in himself. It's his mercy. It's his. He saved us. According to his mercy, he's merciful. So salvation is the work of God. 
because of the mercy of God. Period. There's another one. We're adding to it, right? Salvation is the work of God because of the mercy of God. And it goes against every assumption that we would make in our works ethic idea. That God's posture toward us is not based on our performance. Please let that sit in. It's not based on our performance. You see, uh, my tendency is this, to, to in and of myself try to please God by showing Him I can do it. But I think I should probably learn some lessons in home improvement and apply them to my spiritual life. you got to know what you can do and what you can't do or you're going to get yourself in a whole lot of trouble. Some of you Mr. Fix-its out there know exactly what I'm talking about. As I spent like eight hours this week just trying to fix the gut of a toilet and replace a leaking faucet. Should have hired someone else out for that job, don't you think? you got to know what you can do and you got to know what you can't do. And you can't obtain God's favor through performance. Somebody say amen to that. You mean to tell me, brother, that I don't need to just do a better job for God to smile upon my life? You better believe it. Matter of fact, let me promise you this. You'll never gain God's favor by doing a good job. So stop trying. God's favor is given on the basis of his mercy, who he is, not, and what he intends to do. Salvation is the work of God because of the mercy of God. Those are the two truths, right? Work of God because of the mercy of God. And then the final truth is this, and we can't miss it. The salvation of God, uh, salvation is the work of God because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Underline, underscore, circle, cement it, brand it, whatever it takes. You cannot miss this. How does it happen? We know why it happens, because he's merciful. But, but how? How can he save us on the basis of his mercy? He does so through Jesus. Right? He, the simple terms, he does so by washing us, cleaning us up through regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is, he puts his spirit in us. He pours His Spirit out richly upon us. Simply put, He lives in us and changes the fabric of who we are. We need to change. And God does it. And He does so through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 4, this is the incarnation. See, He looked at our state. He saw our sin, and he did not turn an eye to it and walk away from it. What did God do mercifully? He came to us. His loving kindness and his goodness came to us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the goodness and loving kindness of God. So he came, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on a cross, and I love the irony of the mocking of the crowds, that as Jesus dies unjustly, meaning he didn't deserve to be there, he was perfect, he was sinless, he did not deserve the punishment of sin, and yet he took it upon himself, and while he is there on the cross, 
Do they not mock him and say, he saved others? He cannot even save himself. That is, they heard his teaching. If anyone believes in me, if anyone looks to me, they, they see my works. And they behold this work. And they believe in me. They will be saved. They'll receive eternal life. I will save them. They heard that teaching. And they're mocking him. Aha, he saved others, but he can't save himself. But the irony of that statement is, it's kind of true. He can't save himself in that moment and at the very same time save us. Death needed to occur, and Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute in our place for our sins. And his righteousness now is applied to us so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfect work of Jesus applied to us. And so you recognize that this, salvation is about works. Write it down. Salvation is about work, but not about ours. That's an important shift that I think needs to take place in our minds, that salvation is about work. It's a free gift, as Jared's going to talk about next week. But it was work. It was obedience. It was perfection. It was righteousness. It was love. Not love in the I love tacos way, but love in the fully committed to doing what the Father says. Love in terms of covenant, promise. It was work. But the gospel is this. It's not our work that saves us. Amen? Not ours. It's about Christ's work. Salvation is the work of God. Because of the mercy of God. He's merciful. Through Jesus Christ. And our anthem is this. He saved us. He saved us. Correcting all of our false assumptions about salvation, its nature. He saved us. There's no other, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. Saved. 1 Timothy 1. Here's a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Who? Sinners. That's me. That's you. He saved us. Salvation is the work of God because of the mercy of God. Through Jesus Christ. It's my hope that this prayer, or this uh, truth, would become not just something that we believe, but something we pray. The cry of our hearts. We're going to see that salvation is a decisive action that we receive. It's done, deal, considered. We're also going to see that salvation is an ongoing journey. We're still being saved. You know that? You're still being saved today. And salvation is a future reality. 
We haven't experienced the fullness of it yet. We will be saved, the Scriptures teach. It's bigger than we might think or assume, I should say. So no matter where you are today, hearing the true nature of salvation for the first time, your prayer should be, Lord, save me. Save me. Or if you've been a Christian for decades, your prayer is what? Lord, save me. On the basis of what God is doing today and tomorrow and in the journey of this life and on the basis of our hope, right? Lord, save me on the basis of your mercy through Jesus Christ. This is my prayer. I don't know how many people are in this room that regardless of where you are, that you would pray that prayer, that you would cling to that truth, that it would forevermore transform who you are and how you live. And we see the context of this passage is about the people of God doing good works, right? They're living in a particular way that represents a work that has been done for them. But at the end of the day, salvation is the work of God because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Turn to Him today and receive by faith salvation. Amen? Amen. Now we're going to respond in a number of ways to the Word of God.